Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. We've been talking about the vision for the church and uh, it's this sort of threefold statement. I always think it's interesting when uh, churches revamp or, or rededicate their vision every single year. I think that puts a lot of unnecessary pressure on people who are like considered prophetic because it's like, man, I need something brand new and completely unique every single year. Or somebody at the annual business meeting is like, uh, pastor, back in 2016, you said that reach the lost was our vision. What's the deal? Are we repeating vision now? Um, so our vision has been the same for a long time. And I think that's uh, probably a really good sign because there's a lot of flexibility in a lot of things, but our purpose in our mission has remained the same. And so um, Nate has communicated it very succinctly with this phrase, awaken, equip, send. And so as I was uh, kind of looking at this week and praying about it and thinking about it, I, I feel like there's, there's something that we can do to just charge that a little bit more. So that way those don't just end up being words that maybe you remember when it comes to church trivia night, or maybe you don't, but this is something that actually has such a deep scriptural backing and is uh, ingrained into every one of us as followers of Jesus. So I want to start with just a little bit of history. Now, at the turn of the 1900s, something really unique was happening in America that hadn't happened for a long time. There were plenty of events, if you're a history person, there are plenty of events that were um, sort of undergirding this and, and, and foreshadowing this, but something began to stir um, all over the United States that was genuine Pentecostal revival. That uh, one of the one of the, the the scenes that we look to is Topeka, Kansas, of all places. There was a Bible school that all of a sudden people just started experiencing the Holy Spirit in a special and powerful way. And then we have stories from the East Coast and stories from the West Coast and stories from Europe and 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 even Canada. And there's all these movements happening. And as the the century turns. Um, the Lord began to move in, in a special way, a, a way that had been neglected for a really long time, that people were still building churches, people were still doing things, but there was a lack of the power that we read about in the Bible. When we read about the ministry of Jesus in his biographies, um, it was rife with power. It was rife with, with this, this moving of God, as well as preaching and teaching and all these sort of things. And so the Lord in his grace was, was um, just sovereignly touching fellowships and home churches and established churches and doing really special things. So a part of this season in the early 1900s, uh, it was marked by things like divine healing. There was spiritual utterance like tongues and prophecy. Something that was really notable and very strange for the time was racial reconciliation, that there were people who... I think it was said uh, of Azusa, this, this revival meeting that was happening in California, that the, the color lines were being blurred, that people who normally would never be with one another were fellowshipping together in the Holy Spirit. And um, 
the thing that I think is, is really the most significant that, that really returned in this season is a reinvigorated passion for reaching lost people. And it's funny how when we neglect God, we re- neglect lost people. It's funny how when we, when we kind of just try and, and keep everything neat and tidy in a box, that we begin to ignore people who really need help. And, and I love the way that Jesus describes these people, not just as like, oh yeah, we, we started to have passion for the, the, the heathen. <laughs> we started to have passion for, for people who are not church members. It's like, these people are lost and they need a shepherd to guide them home. They need someone to lead them. Now, uh, I, I like to think, or at least I'm, I'm pretending to be a pretty grounded person. I tend to be a pretty logical and cautious person. That was brought up like a ton of times this week. I don't know if I'm like wearing something on my face, but everybody's like, why are you afraid of everything? I'm not afraid. I'm cautious. Darwin's like, I need to put you in more life-threatening situations so that way you can get over this. And I was like, I think I'm okay. Honestly, I think I, I turned 30 this year and I feel like I get it. I feel like I get who I am, not trying to prove anything to anybody. In that groundedness, there were also a lot of things that marked this early Pentecostal movement. So if some of you are here like, oh, this is just history that makes you look good. What was also very, very prevalent in those days were uh, bad theologies. People were making things up with no consideration to church history or the Bible. Um, What was also happening is abusive and manipulative practices. People were mistreating one another. There was um, sexual scandals. All kinds of things were taking place. Um, Something that was um, happening so frequently that it's frustrating. If you read like a book, just a snippet of the history of this time period, cultish behavior was happening really quickly, that people were getting into these weird sort of man-centered, like quasi-religious cults and things like that. And it was like somebody started with good intentions and then veered off into just strangeness and weirdness and inappropriate behavior. And there's so many negative examples of what church was doing in this time without proper oversight or consideration of the Bible. And so there was a response to this, and, and this, is, this is a little bit closer to home, and so don't think I'm just like this is an infomercial for our church or something like that. But there was a response to this, and I, and I read the, the book on its history, and, and I, I was just so moved, and it just spoke so dearly to me. In 1914, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, 300 Pentecostal believers gathered together um, for a 10-day meeting. And the reason they gathered together, what they wrote in their minutes as they were, they were coming together is they wanted to, um, and I have a quote if you want to look at it, that first quote um, up there. There it is. To commit to him, him being the Lord, for the greatest evangelism the world has ever seen. And within this language and within their 10 days of meeting, they called this the first general council of the assemblies of God. The reason they were meeting is like, we're seeing a lot of people getting, getting kind of loose and wild with this stuff. We're seeing people do things with money. We're seeing people do things with theology that is inadvisable and, and dare I say, heretical. And we need to be organized. Because what's going to happen is if we're not organized and we're just flying by the seat of our pants, is that there are a lot of lost people who are not going to get saved. And we'll sit here in America in our comfortable chairs and enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit while there are people who have never heard the good news about Jesus. 
So if we want to commit to the greatest evangelism, if we want to commit to God's mission, we need to get together and we need to get organized. We need to be able to marry this thing that Jesus talks about where we worship him in spirit and in truth. And we need to find that, we need to strive for that, and we need to throw off this lack of restraint and embrace strategy that is informed by the Holy Spirit. For the sake of Jesus and for a passion for the loss, there is dire need in this area. And I love this because uh, we still do this today. I think it's, uh, we, we meet for general councils, not in Arkansas, praise God, but um, usually Florida because that's so much nicer. Um, but like, in August. <laughs> yeah. I don't like to be hot. Um, they set aside the first four days of their 10 days just to pray. That they were spending time with each other, they were encouraging each other, but the entirety of these four days was set aside just to seek the Lord. That they were making sure we're not just applying rules and regulations and standards so that way we become like the other dry denominations that we're trying to reform, but that we actually embrace the way of Jesus. And uh, it was all rooted around this, this Acts 13 sort of model. I have that verse up there as well, and, and Nate's read from it several times, but we're going to read it again. Acts 13, starting in verse 1, it says, Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Excuse me. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And so this same heart was, was captured in that meeting. And, and I'm not trying to say, like, the Assemblies of God has this, like, perfect, squeaky clean track record. There's all kinds of, if you spend five minutes on it, you're going to find weird doomsday prepper people and people that are trying to name the day that the Lord comes back and sell, like, doom kits. And, and there's plenty of stuff. There's, there's the, all that racial reconciliation that was accomplished early on was, was thrown out the window for a minute and then <laughs> reestablished. And so I'm not saying there was a perfect track record. And I'm really not even saying that uh, we're the only ones that are doing it, but I happen to be here. And when I got saved, um, I didn't get saved in an Assemblies of God church. I got saved in my bedroom by the touch of the Holy Spirit. And I got invited to church. I got invited to church by most people who went to church. And I went to this Assemblies of God church, and I was like, man, uh, there's cute girls here, and, and I, could, I could hang out here. I don't have this long history. My dad isn't a pastor. I don't have those sort of stories or that sort of fondness. But what I do see is people who are trying the same thing we were trying now 100 years ago, <laughs> that we want to be faithful to the Holy Spirit. We want to be faithful to the Word of God for the greatest work of evangelism that the world has ever seen. And God will be glorified in that because that's God's mission. That's God's plan. And so our, is that an airplane? Wow. My ears must just be clearer today. Because, I mean, there's the airport's right over there. I don't know why I'm surprised by that. Um, uh, so our church wasn't founded just on the good ideas of people. Our church was founded on the aim and the ambition to preach the gospel, and seek and save the lost. And uh, continuing with the, the history for just a, another moment, 
uh, a few years later, in 1927, um, at that same general council, they were organizing what they called the Foreign Missions Committee. Now, uh, in this committee, they established groundbreaking impressive stuff, like, hey, maybe before we send people to countries that we don't know anything about, we should train them. And maybe before they get there, they should have the money to, to live there. And this is groundbreaking, because before this, sending missionaries was like, hey, you spoke in tongues? What language do you think that sounds like? I think it sounds kind of Chinese. It's like, all right, let's get you to China and see what happens. And people were like, it's not working. What's going on? It's like, we've misinterpreted what's going on. <laughs> we've we've mis misevaluated the strategy. And so these, these uh, stuffy teachers are like, what if we just raise the money and then sent them? What if we trained them in Bible and language and culture so that way they could plant a church that wouldn't depend on missionaries, but that would be self-propagating, that would be self-sustaining? What if we made a plan and executed that plan by the Holy Spirit? And I love this, uh, this quote from the General Council in 1927. As they're assembling um, the, the Foreign Missions Committee in earnest, which we now call Assemblies of God World Missions, um, I have this quote, if you have got that, yeah, yeah. It says, the Pauline example will be followed so far as possible, and he explains what this is, by seeking out neglected regions where the gospel has not yet been preached, lest we build on another's foundation. And I love this, because this is 1927. Darwin wasn't even on the board yet. This is how long ago this was. <laughs> <laughs> He's been, I mean, as long as I've been here, Darwin's been on the board. Um, but this long precedes like this modern missionary boom that we have now. This precedes things like YWAM. This precedes things like uh, Campus Crusade or anything like that. Um, I looked this up. This actually precedes the coining of the term 1040 window. Um, like we didn't start calling like North Africa, Middle East, South Asia, the 1040 window, which we'll talk about later if that doesn't make any sense to you. We didn't start doing that until the 90s. That these people are coming together like, if we're going to do this, if this is going to last, then we need to actually trust the Lord, seek him, and carry out a plan. Does that sound attractive to anybody or is anybody like a, an anti-planner? You can raise your hand if you want to. I'm just kidding. Um, I, I like having a plan. I like, I like a... a an intention. And the beautiful thing is this truth long precedes the general council. This truth long precedes the assemblies of God because this is actually God's mission. This is actually what God wants. I love this from Isaiah 49. It says this in verse 6. He says, he being the Lord, it is too small a thing that you, you being the like incarnate Messiah, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I'm going to read that one more time. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This has always been God's intention. This has always been God's plan. If you don't trust me, here's an older gentleman who knows Greek and Hebrew, Gary Smith. He says this, God's original plan was to use the seed of Abram to bring his blessing on all nations of the earth. And he quotes Genesis 12, 3 there. And the earlier servant poem already listed the covenant to the nations as part of the servant's purpose. He quotes that from Isaiah 42. 
and already have confirmed that God desired to include the nations as eventual members of his kingdom. So through Jesus, and we read this last, not last week, but the week before in 1 Timothy 2, that God's pure and holy and acceptable desire is that all people would come to the knowledge of the truth, that all people could be saved. That's what God wants. That's what what God's after. And so when we begin to talk about his mission, there's all sorts of specifics, like what's a strategy that we can do to, to see this happen in Pagosa? What's a strategy we can do to see this happen in our neighborhood or at our workplace? There's all sorts of flexibility, but the mission is that all people would know. All people would hear. All people would be afforded the dignity to hear the gospel message that there is a way to be right with God. And I, and I hope I say that precisely. There is a way to be right with God, as in there's only one way to be right with God. There is a way, which is good news. There's only one way. So let's get into our, our text. It will be on the screen, but I always think it's nice to have it in, in your lap. Uh, Matthew 28, if you turn there with me. This may be familiar. It may not. I'm not afraid of that either, either way. <clears throat> At the very end of the book, Matthew 28, we're going to start with verse 16. If you're still flipping, don't sweat it. Verse 16 says this, but the 11 disciples preached, or I'm sorry, proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. Verse 18 says this, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So leading up to this this conclusion of this biography, we see Jesus dying a shameful and horrendous death on a cross, publicly shamed in front of everyone. And he's bearing this not by some sort of accidental, uh, like things didn't go according to plan. This was his intention to act as an atoning sacrifice for all sin for all time, that he took it upon himself. And that is the good news from God. That is the gospel of the kingdom, is that the price that we deserve to pay, God paid himself so that we could live free from the, the bonds of self and the, the shame of sin, and that we could walk in obedience and in with one accord with God. And so Jesus died this horrible death. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He appeared to several, and now we're getting this sort of, uh, this, this culmination of these events as Jesus meets again, and he's not just telling, like, pretty stories anymore. He's saying things very clearly and very intentionally to the people that were closest to him in his life. And I've heard this before as an interpretation, uh, probably just to assuage guilt, uh, that Jesus is saying this to the 12. We shouldn't take that too, too personally because those are apostles, you know. They're, they're Jewish people. A lot of them were single, you know. It's like, that, that can't apply to me. But he did tell them to teach everyone else to do this. So I think under the umbrella of everyone else, I think that includes you and me. That's the interpretation I'm going with today, um, if that makes sense. So Tuesday night, we were here together. A lot of us were here for uh, Bible study. 
And we're going through 1 Timothy. And 1 Timothy 2 starts with, God wants everyone to be saved. Pray for all people. Pray for leaders. And we're like, woo, yeah, let's go. And then it starts, and women. Uh, <laughs> and so I started it with, well, with conveniently, a lot of the guys were gone. And so it was like, it was like me and Errol and a bunch of ladies. Oh, Caleb was there too. Um, and so it was like, all right, let's, let's clear the air. I have an answer for this thing. I have an explanation. But I want to make it very clear that you can't do that all the time. Sometimes it's pivotal. Like we can misunderstand things just because we, we don't, they, they don't catch our ears like they caught the ears of the people at the time. So we need to understand how it would have been originally heard so that way we can understand it. Does that make sense? Um, that's basic interpretation. That's basic uh, hermeneutics of understanding anything that's ancient or different, you know? But I, I wanted to make it clear on the onset, before we explain away what it sounds like, like you can't braid your hair or talk, um, <laughs> before we, we get down to the nitty-gritty of what's actually being said, um, we need to understand that we can't just do this if things feel uncomfortable, we can't just like, man, I don't like that Bible first. I wonder if there's some history that could take this away. I wonder if there's just something that I can, that I can look, if there's an opinion that I can trust that will just, that will just uh, take away this guilt and this, this feeling of, of accountability and requirement. I, I, and you just, you just can't. I, I, I am such a proponent of, of, of laboring to understand and not just settling for, like, I think this is what it means, so I guess I'll just go with that and form my whole personality and theology around it. Like, I, I'm all for laboring towards that, but there are places that we just, it's just, that's what it says. And that's what it means, and that's what God meant for it to say. And so when we look at passages like this, it sounds very demanding, and there's a good reason. I remember working at a, a deli, and people would walk in and be like, man, it smells good in here. That soup smells so good. And we're like, well, there's a good reason, because the soup is good. That's why it smells good. And there's a reason that this sounds demanding, because it is demanding. And in, like, free sort of, like, we're forgiven, we're accepted by grace theology, sometimes we think, well, since I've been given grace to approach God, that there's no demands or requirements that, that follow that. And that's just not true. And so I want to look at this. I want to look at this uh, one step at a time. And uh, if, you're, if you're in here and you're, you're, you're living the life and you're doing the thing, I, I f forgive me if this feels repetitive, but um, I feel like this is something that we have always needed. They needed it in 1927, we need it in, in 2023. I think we'll need it as long as Jesus tarries before he comes back. I think we'll need to remind ourselves and encourage one another in this. And this is God's mission. This is what God intends to do. Over church history, we have, we have accurately called this the Great Commission. And commission is a pretty word. Two M's, two S's, come on, that's a pretty word. But what we're avoiding is it's a command. That it's not just like, Hey, here's a job, take it or leave it. Though this is now that you are disciples of Jesus, this is what you're this is what you're to do. So let's look at the first thing I want to look at is is the phrase all authority. You see that in verse uh, 18. 
Jesus isn't telling folk stories. Jesus isn't telling like riddles or parables anymore. He's just speaking really straight, man. He's saying, all authority belongs to me in heaven and on earth. And I feel like that speaks so directly to any opposition. There's no emotional opposition that can, that can rival the plan of God. There's no government institution that can rival the plan of God. And there's no demonic intervention that can rival or usurp God's plan. He says, all authority belongs to me. And the second thing he says is go. He says, therefore, go. And, and I love a good therefore in the Bible. I always put a box around the therefores because you can look directly previously why that thing is being said. So he's not just saying go because, I don't know, I just thought of it. Seems like a good idea. He's like, no, because all authority belongs to me, this is what I want. This is what I command. Therefore, go. Now, um, <laughs> we have interpreted this passage frequently as, as more so like therefore be. Like, man, if you could be a good influence, if you could be uh, positive vibes, if you could be that sort of um, sensation of hope and grace, then that's going to really change a lot of people's things. And I remember seeing this in the Instagram bio of a, of a worship leader where he said, like, kindness is going to change the world. And I was like, I mean, maybe. But if you leave people to themselves long enough, uh, kindness becomes neglected. I think we can see that through the history of, of the human race. It's like, uh, kindness is good. I'm not saying like, all right, now we can all walk away with godly permission to be jerks. Kindness is important. Kindness is critical. But kindness, for the sake of kindness, doesn't actually accomplish very much. And so the idea of therefore be, there's, there's some grammar in the Greek, and I'm not uh, a professor or, or deep into these sort of things, but I've had it explained to me by people who are actually smart and, and there's grammar to, to say, like, as you are going, accomplish this. And so we've kind of taken that to be like, well, then I guess I'm good, you know? Like, I'm, I'm where I am, and so let's just, let's just see how much of this I can get done in arm's reach. And I just want to reinvigorate go. Because I, I, I don't pretend that all of us are called to go to some faraway place. But what I do understand is that these things don't happen on accident. Because the next phrase is make disciples, not like uncover hidden disciples, not like accidentally hatch disciples. Disciples are made. And, and there's a reason for that. If you've ever followed Jesus, and I hope you have, there are crossroads where you feel like this is hard that I should confront this person or I should confront this thing. I should disapprove this thing that other people are approving and I should approve this thing that other people disapprove of. There are moments where it's difficult and there needs to be discipline to do it. I, I'm telling you honestly, if I walked into a boxing gym this afternoon, I would come close to dying. <laughs> Why? Because I'm not a boxer. I've never trained in this. I know next to nothing about it. So if you try to fight with people who are fighters, you'll get hurt. 
does this analogy track? So if you're trying to follow Jesus without being a follower of Jesus, you're, you're going you're gonna to struggle. And so you can ask genuine, heartfelt questions in person or online, how do I follow Jesus? And, and Jesus makes it so clear. It's like, you need to be made into a disciple. And that's why I want to emphasize the go part is that if you expect this to happen on accident, that 50 years down the line, when the Lord takes you home and he's like, man, there are millions of people who have become disciples because you, you, you tipped 20% at restaurants and coffee shops. I mean, bless God, maybe. <laughs> but the, the idea of serving Jesus, the idea of being a disciple is that you could and you would make disciples. And Jesus' kind of premier metaphor for this is, is uh, agriculture. He's talking about harvesting. And when we talk about like harvesting um, uh, uh, like the fruit of a field, uh, the harvest is the, the, the end of the line. <laughs> There's a lot of preparing. There's a lot of cultivating. There's a lot of weathering, and there's a lot of trial. And if you've ever been in church, and I hope you have, you'll feel these things with people, that there are seasons where people are enthusiastic and excited and things are going well. But inevitably, life really does happen and things really do get hard. And without cultivation and preparation and discipleship, I honestly wouldn't blame you if you just bailed. I can say that for my own life. I got saved in a time where neither of my parents were serving Jesus. I didn't have siblings that were serving Jesus. And there were moments where I was like, wow, this is really hard, and I'm, I'm kind of scared, even as a teenager, you know. And, and it was probably a lot of hormones and emotions, but there were, there were hard times that I felt like, man, I could give up. But what, like, what's, what's my, my, my youth pastors, Daniel and Tiffany, they, they've been there for me the whole time. Like, Nate's story is way harder than mine. He's still going to youth group on Wednesday nights. I think I can make it because these people are pouring into my life and teaching me the way to go. And this is really at the heart of of that vision statement. If that vision statement is too simple for you, I hope this gives some, some teeth to it. When we talk about awakening, when we talk about equipping, this is, this is the heart of that because at the heart of Awakening, we're not just awakening people to a cause. We're not just awakening people to a good idea or a worldview. We're awakening people to Jesus, to the way of Jesus. And there's never been a person who's been confronted with the way of Jesus and just been like, I know exactly what to do in every situation. That's why we have the church. The church is deeply imperfect and has been expressed in, in a variety of different ways in a variety of different places. But what we continually return to is for the equipping, for the teaching, for the, the camaraderie, for the encouragement that we could actually do this together by God's grace. So I skipped ahead. Number three is make disciples. Yeah. Um, disciples aren't hatched in some sort of perfect maturity. I used to pray for that when I was a youth pastor because teenagers are messy and it's hard. And I was like, uh, I'm guessing that's what revival is like, right? So let's, 
let's pray for revival so that way we don't have to do the dirty work of getting these kids to stop doing bad things or getting these kids to, to stop like sleeping with their girlfriends or smoking pot or whatever they're doing. So that way we can get to the, the, the good stuff, you know, like serving Jesus. And, and I realize that serving Jesus is making disciples. Serving Jesus is that, that, that hard stuff of maturing and being consecrated. And uh, I, I think the, the way that Jesus did it is, is pretty advisable. <laughs> I think um, if we're, if we're going to take an example, I think this is a pretty good example. And really the best examples after Jesus were just slight modifications of what Jesus did. He took a group of people and he spent just a whole mess of time with them. <laughs> and in this time, they were, they were growing in uh, personal collection, uh, personal connection. They were growing in relational equity. They were growing in in like brotherly love for one another, and also they were being taught the truth about God. I don't know. I think that's a good idea. So we're going to keep trying that uh, to the best of our ability uh, to make disciples. The fourth thing that I have written down is this phrase: "All nations." Um. This is a conversation, we're going to spend a little bit of time with this at the end, but the, the idea here is that um, there is uh, not just a fragment of the church here, um, let, me, let me use a different metaphor, I'm sorry. We are a small part of something much larger, and... If you haven't, like, traveled very far away or anything like that, sometimes, like, Pagosa can feel very insular and it can feel very um, isolated. Um, there's things that people are struggling with in the world that we don't necessarily have in wholesale, like, uh, majority here. But if God's desire is for all people, we really can't limit the scope of evangelism to, like, um, what we feel like we can accomplish, and it's easy being a small church and like seeing a handful of people get saved every once in a while. Like, well, I guess that's, I mean, what more could we expect of ourselves? But I just want to stand here to say like, we are a part of a church that is grand and glorious and advancing aggressively in the earth. And don't count yourself out of that because you feel like, well, I got to go to work tomorrow. You know, it's like, how much of this can I, how much of this can I possibly be a part of? I think we are a part of something that's much larger. And I referenced earlier the Pauline example, and I just want to read from Romans 15 to kind of give a little bit of uh, context to that. Romans 15, starting in verse 18, says this, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. This is Paul kind of qualifying what he's about to say. He said, In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem... Round about as far as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Honestly, before I had this read to me, I didn't think you could say things like this. I had read it before and just completely, I space out very easily. I just glazed over. And then somebody read it to me. It's like what he's saying is everywhere that he's gone, he feels confident before God and before the church of all history that he completely accomplished the work that he was sent to do. I mean, the confidence on this man. Like, that is absurd. I can't even say that about most meals that I've eaten, that I fully accomplished it. Like, that's, that's crazy. But what he's saying is, 
everywhere I've gone, I've obeyed the Holy Spirit, I've been true to the gospel, and I've preached it shamelessly everywhere that I've been from this point to this point. Amazing. Incredible. And the next thing he says is where it gets really sticky. Verse 20. And thus, because of all this, I aspire to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. And he says, I, I'm going to go to Spain because nobody's a Christian there <laughs> and they need to hear about Jesus. And it's like, I mean, the, the levels of this are, are breathtaking. One, to say, like, I'm going to fully accomplish where I'm at. And then to say, but I won't go somewhere where there's already work being done because there are lots of people that are already being neglected. This is early days of the church. This is early days of the movement and he's saying, like, I'm not going to just keep building up the same wall that's already been built. So toward the conclusion of this magnum opus, epic letter to the church in Rome, he makes his intention very clear. He makes it clear that he's going to plunge into the wild. Not for his own reputation, though you can kind of interpret it that way, like he sounds like, I don't want anybody else's foundation, I want my foundation. What he's saying is to bring the good news about Jesus to people who are especially neglected. So in every sermon, there should be three steps. One is a, a fun story to start. <laughs> you don't have to start with a fun story. That's what I usually try to do. That's what I was taught. Then you go into the exposition. That's when you talk about the Bible, right? And then the last thing is application. I mean, you can change the order and stuff. You don't have to follow that. The nice thing about this application is I already told you. <laughs> like, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to recognize the supreme authority of Jesus and go and make disciples. That's the application. I'll try to be a little bit more specific for, for uh, people. I, I used to do youth group here, and, and Tate Hinger would sit right here every Sunday night, and I'd be just talking forever. Like, I was just so self-indulgent preaching. Like, I'd have, like, 18 pages of notes and just, like, lots of stuff to talk about. And he would just look at me towards the end, and he'd be like, I have a question. What's, where, what am I supposed to do with all this? <laughs> and I was like, I love Jesus. I don't know. <laughs> and he's like, what's, what's, what's the takeaway? And I groan, you know, and I tell everybody that's like an adult volunteer in youth group, it's like, you got to have a takeaway. You got to have a take takeaway, or else you're going to get called out at the end of the sermon. Um, <laughs> like, you have to apply the Bible. You can't just read it. Um, so here's, here's a little bit of a takeaway. Take Number one that I recommend in response to the sovereign word of God is to be a disciple. And, and the way that I, I flesh this out simply for you, and I know there's plenty of nuance and we can talk about this in greater detail, but I think something that I would recommend to everyone as I, as I attempt to make eye contact across the room, something I would, I would recommend to everyone is to commit to God's church. I don't mean like open doors, God's church. Like commit to being in church with other believers. That's, a, that's like step zero. That's not even, you're just barely getting started. And then this is the, this is the difficult part. This is the part that, that costs you a little bit of, 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 of feeling good. Seek out relationships and leadership. Because honestly, if you're trying to do this, like maybe, maybe I'll start getting 
plugged in when I've matured a little bit or when I know what's going on or when I understand what people are talking about when they're talking about the Bible. Maybe I'll get plugged in then. That's a, a fallacy. It just doesn't happen like that. I remember not being in church, getting saved without being in church, like not having a history or, or baggage or anything like that. And I walked up to the guy who was in charge of teenagers and they're like, will you teach me how to read the Bible? Will you teach me how to pray? Will you tell me how to do these things? And he was like taken aback. He's like, well, I'll come to youth group. And I was like, yeah, 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 I'm coming to youth group, but I don't know what anybody's talking about. Can you help me get there? And he's like, yes, wow, sure, you know? And, I, and there was this cool guy who played bass guitar on the, on the worship team. And I was like, dude, you love Jesus. Will you help me love Jesus? And he's like, yeah, man. And he had a car and he listened to like heavy music. And I was like, discipleship, praise God. Like, and I was, I was, and I was confused. Like, I, I didn't know that you should be ashamed of asking for help, you know, like, I, and, and uh, nobody told me that you were just supposed to pretend like you understood until you actually did. And, and, and I would just want to invite you to that same sort of ignorant shamelessness that you would just be like, man, I need help because I can speak for myself. I need help. And, and I hope that you feel that too this morning. I hope that, that you feel the weight of the authority of Scripture. You feel the weight of what it means to listen to the Holy Spirit and realize, I don't know how to do that. I need help. And that you would make conscious effort to seek out that sort of leadership in your life. The second thing, you can probably follow the train of thought, I hope, is to make disciples. So if you're one of those people that are like, man, I'm really scared of asking for help, and then somebody else asks you for help, help them. <laughs> this, is, this is probably more difficult than the first example, is to ask people if you can help them. Because that feels prideful, right? Like, I want to disciple you. What a, what a loaded, pregnant phrase. Like, excuse me? <laughs> you? Like, <laughs> but the reality here is this is the way, this is the example that we have. I'm telling you, I listen to so many podcasts. I listen to sermons with most of my free time because I'm a nerd. <laughs> but that has never offered me the spiritual enrichment of sitting shoulder to shoulder or across a table with another person. I have learned lots of trivia that I can regurgitate and sound smart but the enrichment that comes from just listening to someone who cares for you. I've been discipled by people that don't care for me, and that works sometimes too, but I, don't, I hope you won't find that in this church. So go, go make disciples. There are needs in this room linked to how many people are in this room. There are needs in Pagosa linked to how many people are in Pagosa. Do you see the correlation there? Because people need help. <sighs> and there are needs here. There are needs in Colorado. There are needs in um, Archuleta County. And uh, I want to be really, really transparent. There are a lot of needs elsewhere as well. I know it's hard to sit in a small church where uh, there are continual updates on like construction and things like that and, and a small church that varies in, in, in size week to week. 
and think like, well, we're the, we're the need, you know? Like, but there's something funny about Pagosa. And, and maybe you can track with this experience and maybe you have some sort of exception that you can offer to me after all this. But what's going to happen in Pagosa is that you could uh, park your car at the one way downtown and walk 30 feet and meet a Christian. You can probably walk out of your house or apartment and not waste an hour before you meet somebody who can explain to you the gospel of Jesus. That is something that we shouldn't scoff at. That's not a bad thing. But uh, that's not true in a lot of places. <laughs> and even in, in those like really gross like cities that you, that you hear about in the bad part of the news, there are people there that know the good news about Jesus in America. And so humor me for a moment while I just tell you something that matters. When Jesus said all nations, um, we translate it all nations, and it's not wrong to call it all nations, but the, the term in Greek is ta ethne. And so we can see this as ethnic groups. We've, we've uh, sociology has, has kind of redefined this as people groups, groups of people. And, and there's all kinds of different reasons why people groups exist and why they're, they're separated. Um, common history, you know, um, their beliefs is a big reason why people like kind of form units and, and people groups. Um, their general cultural identity and a big gigantic one is language. The reason that people form groups is because they speak the same language. And it's easy to talk. It's easy, like it's, it's possible to learn other languages, but you want to talk to people who speak the same language as you. So we get these divisions and these people groups. Um, there's a ministry called Joshua Project that has uh, spent a lot of time studying this, and they've identified that there's 17,443 distinct people groups in the world. Some of those groups are thousands of people. A lot of those groups are millions of people. 7,423 of these people groups are considered unreached with the gospel. Let me, let me describe to you what it means to be unreached. That means less than 2% of the population are, are Bible-believing, practicing Christians. 2% sounds pretty unreached to me, but these are less than 2%. And these people groups make up 42.6% of the global population. I remember hearing this for the first time in 2015, having been a Christian for some time already, and realizing, no. You're telling me almost half the world has never heard the good news about Jesus. Just a little bit less than half of the world has never heard a presentation of the gospel ever. And if they walked for days, they wouldn't meet somebody who could articulate it to them. <laughs> and I, I think I have it on there. That's three billion people. I'm not a big stat guy because numbers become cotton candy in my brain. It just goes away. But I hope maybe somebody in the room, that, that means something to you, because that's three billion people. That's entire populations of countries. That's a lot of people. Of those 7,400 groups, there's 3,000 of those groups that are considered unengaged so 7,000 of them are unreached, means that the, the, that the church hasn't been planted and is growing um, in a, in a self-sustained manner. Unengaged means no one is even trying. There has been no effort into those, those wild areas. 
Get this one. This is crazy. They're already up there, so you can just look, read ahead. 95% of all these people live in a relatively small geographic area. Isn't that crazy? Most of them, the vast majority of them, live in one small strip of land in the world. This is North Africa, South, Southeast Asia, and the Middle East. Almost all of them live there. And over the course of modern history, the last century plus, America and Europe have sent hundreds of thousands of missionaries. And there are frontiers that have been plunged, the church has been established and is growing, and a people group that was unreached has now been reached. But I'm going to tell you today, less than 3% of the missionaries that we send Actually, I think this 3% number actually applies to money being spent. Less than 3% of it is working in this area. And that's uh, disturbing. That's rampant injustice. Because there's need in Pagosa. I get that. There's need in Colorado. Absolutely. But I struggle with the idea that God would, in his wisdom, tip the scale so dramatically in one direction. This is something I don't have on a slide, but I think it's interesting. Uh, so all these places that we're talking about, 7,423, whatever, people groups, um, a lot of these places are dangerous. <laughs> Most of them are dangerous. The easy places people have already gone. Uh, and and a, a few of these places are dangerous because of uh, the wilderness. Like they're remote, they're hard to get to. Uh, most of these places are dangerous because of the people that live there. Uh, because of governments, because of uh, religious groups, because of these kinds of things. And among the people, the, the, the small minority of people that are working in this area, uh, I think women outnumber men nine out of ten. Like, I think nine out of every ten missionaries that are working in these areas are women, single women. <sighs> and again, I, I'm totally cool with women. I, I talk about women on Tuesday night. It, it means whatever you hope it means when a, a man says they're cool with women preaching the gospel and being leaders, whatever. <laughs> I know that, that, how much can that mean coming from me? You know, I'm just a... I'm just a person. But I, I, I feel like there is, is some disobedience in that. There must be. I, I have a hard time believing that God is, is in his perfect, faultless wisdom saying, yeah, we're going to put 97% of all of our effort into places that already have functioning, growing churches. And we'll just spare the scraps for people who are dying with never hearing about Jesus. <laughs> I, um, I remember uh, being in a Muslim country, and I was walking down the street, it was like week two, and uh, we, the, we did the only thing we knew how to do. We would pray, and then we would walk around where there's a lot of people and ask somebody if they spoke English. <laughs> And I remember uh, having trouble finding somebody to talk to. And I'm a pretty shy person to begin with. So I was like, 
God, if I could just find somebody that was like just smoking a cigarette and, and drinking a cup of coffee, I, and then literally I basically trip over a guy who's smoking a cigarette and drinking a cup of coffee by himself. I was like, well, I can't not talk to this guy, you know, like I can't be that specific, and then it just happened. And so I sat down, do you speak English? And he's like, oh, uh, yeah, I do. And he spoke very clear English. He, he uh, went to college. He, he studied like computer science and stuff, and, and he was a very smart, very articulate person. He'd done some traveling um, outside of, of his home country and, and all this sort of stuff. And, and I remember um, we didn't waste very much time. He was very concerned with what I believed about God. Because uh, in the country we were in, I look like a Muslim, but I'm not. <laughs> and so he's like, so what, what, why are you here? What are you doing? You're from America. Well, like, what, what, what's going on? And he's like, what do you think about paradise? Like, it was the question he asked me. I was like, well, let me tell you about that, actually. That's, I've been working on telling you that. Um, I believe God became a man and died for my sin so that way I could be right with him and that when I die, I'm forgiven and I'm right before God. What? You don't, you don't do anything? No, I didn't do anything. God did everything because it's for his glory that I'm saved and I'm rescued from the punishment that I rightfully deserve because he paid it himself. And he's like, you've got to be kidding me. There's no scale? You don't, your good works don't have to outweigh bad works? It's like, no, my bad works are gone. And I'm free in Jesus. And I follow him and I, I obey him because he's worth it. And he's like, man, I really like that. This is a man who was probably almost twice my age, college educated, career man. This isn't some like, strange refugee in, in a hole somewhere. This is a person who has been on the scene in the world for longer than I had. And that was the first time he's ever heard that weak, shaky example of Jesus forgiving you. That's the first time he ever heard that. And he was taken aback. He's like, I like that. And I'm starting to get confident. You know, I was like, you should, <laughs> you know, like it's the truth. And he's like, no, I mean, it's not, but it sounds good. And he's like, why would God do that? And I was like, because that's who he is. He's good. He's kind. He's sacrificial in the way that he loves us. He's like, no, he's not. He's all powerful. Why would, why would he give of himself? He deserves the glory. You don't think God deserves the glory? He's like, absolutely. That's why he paid the price. He doesn't need me to save myself. He's like, sure. Good for you. But I serve God. And at that point, I'm like, well, can I buy you another cup of coffee? Like, what are, you, what, are you doing? what are you doing after this, you know? And I remember thinking and uh, talking to several other people that night and talking to several other people while we were there. And uh, I remember being confronted by a taxi driver where he's like, a God who, who gives that much, you wouldn't obey him. And I was like, you have kids, right? He's like, oh, yeah, I have six kids. He was like 21 <laughs> or something. Uh, and I was like, so do you want your kids to obey you because they're afraid of you or because they love you? And he's like, well, I want them to love me. And I was like, so are you more merciful than Allah? Are you more kind than God? And he's like, how dare you say something like that? And I was like, that's what you said. 
you think you're more merciful. And this guy has this confliction, this conflict of, of general revelation in his heart where he knows what God is saying, but he has been suppressed in, in lies and deception. And I want to tell you honestly, that was literally every single person we talked to in a pretty stinking open country. Um, we've gotten a little bit off the beaten path, but I want to pray for us this morning because the, the vision of God, the mission of God is not this selfish, myopic, therapeutic sort of thing. I believe there's so much comfort in the Holy Spirit. There's so much camaraderie and we all need help. But I think our church begins to align itself with our history and begins to align ourselves with God when we exist for the sake of other people. When we begin to exist for the sake of the lost. Because it's not going to happen on accident. That's why I think God called it news, you know? It's rare that you care about news that you hear accidentally. (laughs) But something that someone is looking into your eyes with love and care and is telling you that. Um, whether it's in Pagosa or whether it's across the world, I believe this is God's vision for every single person. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.